Hey there, Next Real listeners, this is Andy. Before we dive into this episode, I wanted to let you know about an exciting change. As you may have noticed, we have been including episodes of one of our other shows, Movies We Like, in this feed. Well, we are thrilled to announce that Movies We Like has grown so much that it's now ready to strike out on its own. From now on, to catch the latest episodes of Movies We Like, you'll want to head over to its dedicated feed and hit that subscribe button. We've got plenty of other great content lined up, and we don't want you to miss a thing. Don't worry, though, the next Real Film Podcast isn't going anywhere. We'll still be bringing you the same in-depth discussions and analysis of your favorite films right here in this feed. So if you love what we do with Movies We Like, be sure to search for it in your favorite podcast app and subscribe today. Thanks for being a part of our podcast journey, and now, let's get back to the show. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of Movie Conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Welcome to the Next Real Speakeasy on Rashpixel.fm. I'm Andy Nelson, and that over there is Pete Wright. Hello, everybody. On the Next Real Speakeasy, we invite a guest from the industry to join us, and instead of serving up their favorite cocktails, they serve up movies that they love so that we can all talk about them. I'd like to welcome our guest to this month's show, producer Catherine Hand. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Well, hello, Andy. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, so glad to have you and Pete, on board. Pete, Pete, thank, hello, I'm Pete. here. Yes, I yes, know. I Chuck liver over you. here. <laughs> Didn't want to, I didn't want you to feel left out. Guys, it, 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 good catch. It was close. <laughs> That's right. it, was, it was almost there. So, Catherine, yeah. you've you've had a uh, a busy year um, uh, as as one of the uh, the the core creative uh, producers on the uh, A Wrinkle in Time film that came I out. I know, this year, I know. I was so excited. Was, yeah, absolutely. Before we talk a little bit about that film, though, I wanted to jump back into your past a little bit and talk about kind of how you got started in the industry and what you've been doing. So my understanding is that you actually got your start working uh, with Norman Lear back I uh, did. Back I did. I mean, it was like going to, you know, graduate school at Harvard and Yale all in one. You know, I, I learned so much from him. He was, you know, the king of the road, so to speak, in, in the entertainment business at the time I was working for him. And it was a real, real wonderful opportunity. 
So what kind of uh, things were you doing there? Well, you know, I, I first started off when the shows that he was producing, writing, directing, not directing, but producing, um, All in the Family was on the air, Maud, Stanford and Son, all of them. And, um, and I was in the office doing administrative work. And, and I would back up his secretary sometimes because I had worked in Washington on the Hill and worked for a senator for about a year. And so he knew I had, you know, some kind of experience. And so um, then he kind of, he would engage in conversation with me. And I had been a theater major and he would send me down sometimes to give him notes. And he had a closed circuit TV in his room watching the rehearsals. And I think there was a, you know, kind of a synchronicity, I guess, in the notes I would say and the things he was seeing. So what trust was building up. And then... um, you know, one day it just so happened that while he was making plans to leave day-to-day television and kind of pursue new endeavors, one thing led to another. And he was thinking about if the Smithsonian would want the Archie and Edith Bunker chairs. And he, he, he reached out to the head of publicity and said, call Kathy. And he met another Kathy in New York. But I heard my name. And I said, yes. And he said, oh, Kathy, you worked in Washington. Do you know anyone that's connected to the Smithsonian? And I said, yes, I do. And so I happened to know a late congressman from Indiana named John Bradamus, who went on to become president of New York University. And I called John and I said, John, do you think the Smithsonian would want these chairs? And he said, not only do I think they would want the chairs, I think we should plan a slew of activities, a meeting with the president, the Senate, the Congress, <laughs> and a reception at the, at the Smithsonian for a thousand people. So I went back to Norman and I said, well, I think he thinks that they would want them. And so um, I went from being a receptionist to event producer because of one phone call. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> And so that is I fantastic. Then, listen, Your career would, is an accident of naming. You would not believe it. So I, <laughs> so I went to Washington and I met with people connected to, you know, the Carter administration, the Senate, the House, working with the Smithsonian. And I actually was the person that produced all those events. No cell phone, no Internet and no team. It was me. <laughs> and wow. um, and so. It was great. I mean, it was all really successful. And when it was all over, Norman was really pleased. And because the the cast came back, Norman and different executives came back for the events. The one person that didn't come was Carol O'Connor, who had had played Archie Bunker because he was ill. So, you know, it was unfortunate that he couldn't come, but everybody else did. Anyway, it was very successful. And Norman asked me if I would like to be his assistant in all of his new endeavors. And I had always wanted to be in the movie business and he wanted to go and make movies. And I was just so excited and thrilled. And it turned out that working for Norman was part show business and part politics. So I helped him create a nonprofit called People for the American Way, which kind of grew out of the research we did on the film he wanted to make called Religion. Every single day was different than the next, which was why it was so challenging and so exciting. And the incredible people that wanted to meet with him or come to see him, you know, it was really 
It was really an incredible, you know, once in a lifetime experience. Did did you have a sense when you started working for Norman of of just the the sort of impact that that his work was having on just on entertainment? I mean, at, at what point does that does that hit you between the eyes that that this guy is uh, is, is going to become a legend? Well, it was really funny because you know the people at the office and with Norman, you just went to work every day. Sure. It was hard. You know, it was hard and he was always, you know, t- in, a, in a wrestling with the actors or the writers, of, you know, getting it right, you know, everybody getting, being happy. And someone did an interview with him for 60 Minutes. And I remember watching that interview and thinking, wow, I work for him. Shift in perspective. Yeah, but, but I, think, um, I think also the letters that he received really made you realize what an impact he was having. And when I really understood was every single time I made a phone call to try to get in to meet with someone in the course of trying to arrange all of these events, I would just say, my name is Catherine Hand and I'm working for, I'm on calling on behalf of Norman Lear. And it was like all the doors opened. You know, I mean, everybody wanted to meet Norman or wanted to have a conversation with him. And the most interesting thing was that kind of conservative people thought he was just like Archie Bunker and liberal people thought he was just like Mike Stivic. So Norman had this incredible um, ability to kind of walk, uh, you know, to, to do the comedy in such a way that he didn't really, he offended everyone and no one, you know, everyone thought that they saw themselves in the shows that he did. And uh, and that was his true genius, I think, that he made everyone laugh at each other. Working for Norman and in that office, we laughed a lot. You know, Norman is really oh. funny. And at least he was in those days. He was really funny. And, and so were the other writers and the actors. I mean, they would come walking in and someone would inve- inevitably fall, you know, do some sort of prank of, of falling or <laughs> saying something funny. And, you know, it was it was really fun. If there's any difference that I see in when I started and my experience this past year or so is that there was so much joy. And everybody yeah. in everybody in the business in the old days came out of theater. Yeah. Or, you know, there really weren't there weren't even that many film schools. The AFI hadn't even been created yet when I started working there. So, you know, Everybody just wanted to entertain people and make people laugh and write good things and, and, you know, push the envelope. And, and it really wasn't until about, you know, I would say 25, 30 years ago where it started to change. And I think it started to change when people, when Jaws came out and a lot of people thought, oh, there's a lot of money to be made in this business. Well, (laughs) certainly that did shift uh, quite a bit with the whole blockbuster scheme and and the way that that everything's kind of gone from there. Uh, Now, were you working with with Norman through all of that or by that point? Because you ended up at Embassy Pictures and American Zoetrope at a couple different places. So So I started working at Norman's office as a receptionist. That was my first job in 1976. I think all in the family had been on, yeah, I think all in the family had been on the air for five years, so it was on for another three while I was there and okay. um and then from there, then I went to work directly just with Norman and his new endeavors um from seventy nine 
to 83, which I think they bought Embassy Pictures. And then it became Embassy Pictures, Embassy Television, you know, it just became a very big company. From there, it's when I went up to San Francisco and I just was in the right place at the right time. And I got very lucky. And I went to work for a guy named Fred Fuchs, who was the president of Zoetrope, right as they were beginning the pre-production of Godfather 3. And I was so, I was really happy to be working on, even, even if it was a third installment, even if it wasn't as good as the first two, it was still The Godfather, you know? And, uh, and I, I just, I remember my most favorite day was um, the very first day of the very first read-through. And it was at Rehearsal Hall 22 at Napa Vineyard, where Francis gathered the, t- the cast and Mario Puzo and everybody. And they all sat around this long table, Diane Keaton, George Hamilton, Andy Garcia, um, Al Pacino. They were all around this long table. And then Francis opens the script and he says, exterior Vatican day. And I swear to God, I heard the bugle or the trumpet or whatever. (laughs) Totally. And you know, it was so funny is like, you know, there were so many different rewrites of that script. I mean, geez, they even had to go back and refilm it and recut it and everything. But that day, I thought it was perfect. Oh, what a, what a treat. We've talked yeah. about that series on the show, and it's just it's a, such a fantastic series. And, uh, and the third one certainly um, has its share of, of uh, disdain, but uh, boy, it's still such a great film. It really is. It is. So, I mean, yeah. you know, there's just, I mean, he was, Francis Coppola is a master filmmaker. Yeah, and absolutely. and just to be in his presence was just a real treat. And then, you know, even at one point, he was interested in uh, maybe directing a Wrinkle in Time. Seriously, let's start talking yeah. about that now. So, so how did this? How did that story enter your life and and all of this? Because it sounds like you obviously already had connections to the story of Wrinkle in Time by the time you were working with Coppola. Oh yeah, so. Basically, what happened was when I was working with Norman, a friend of mine, very shortly after I started working for him, a friend of mine said, well, you know, if you had the, ch- the opportunity, what would you want to produce? And at that time, when they asked me that question, I had never thought about producing anything. And I was just, you know, trying to do, you know, read all of the scripts that Norman gave me or give him notes and all those kinds of things. And, um, and I gave him the book, A Wrinkle in Time. Because what had happened was when I was a little girl, I had read the book and immediately started a letter to Walt Disney to have him make the movie and star me as Meg. <laughs> Naturally. And, I love that. That's yeah. a total like, kid's, kid's dream. Like, yeah, I, mean, right. I think you it's, need to make this, Mr. Walt, and please cast me. <laughs> yeah. So um, I was too shy to send the letter. And a couple of years later, he died. And I felt really guilty that I hadn't sent him that letter. And then I thought, man, you know, I better really think of someone else to write a letter to and tell them about A Wrinkle in Time. And I just couldn't think of anyone that made movies for children other than Walt Disney. So since I knew of no one else to tell, I made a promise to myself to grow up and make the movie myself. And that was 50 years ago. So you you pitched it to Norman and said, oh, yeah, so I pitched it to Norman. 
yeah, so I pitched it to Norman, and he said, well, you know, I really love, he really loved it. And he said, you know, this, this is beautiful. This is wonderful. But it's not really something for me to write or direct. And I said, well, could I go after the rights anyway? And he said, well, you know, if you can get Alan Horn, who was then the president of his company, to agree, yes. So I sent the book to Alan. Alan read it, said he loved it. He wasn't sure how it could be made, but that I should go for it. So with that, I wrote a letter, did not hesitate. I wrote a letter, <laughs> sent it to Madeline Langle. And a few days later, I got a collect call from Madeline Langle. <laughs> and uh, she agreed to meet with me. And I was on a plane to New York. And we met. And, you know, at lunch, I, I found out that hundreds of people had one of the rights to a wrinkle in time. And I don't know if I was just in the right place at the right time, the fact that I was the first generation of that had been exposed to a wrinkle in time and that I worked with Norman Lear and that, you know, we got along so well and my love for it was just complete and total. Uh, six months later, Norman's company had the rights with me as the champion. But then you left and, and the rights stayed kind of with you. Yeah, so what happened was um, Norman still technically owned the option uh -huh. But he knew how important it was to me. And so he let me pursue it and find another way, other talents, other writers, other co-partners co or whatever to bring to the table and that he would then consider and, and, and try and help make the, get the movie made. So it was a, it was a very complex, uh, complicated kind of situation, but it wasn't over. I mean, I was still connected to it. And then in 1989, his rights were up. But I had become, by that time, very close to Madeline Langle. And I didn't, I didn't have the money to option it. And she said, mm -hmm. well, you know, go and see if you can set it up elsewhere. And I will not sign a deal unless they, you are made the producer. And wow. so God, what that's what happened. Yeah. So that's what happened. And so you, you've had that kind of exclus exclusivity kind of since then. And I know the, the, the one that you just did is the second version that you did. Yeah. You did yeah. A, a version, like a TV version in 2003, and then you got this one done. Um, and so I, I, the 2003 one, I, 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 I'm assuming that you weren't as happy with it since you wanted to redo <laughs> it again. Yes, right. I think that's a fair assumption. <laughs> okay. Well, and yeah, it was. It was a. It's such a sweet interview. This uh, this NPR interview that you did, and talking with with Madeline too, uh, when it came, you know, about how it it just sort of fell flat. How did it fall flat for you? Oh, let me count that way. First of all, budget matters. You know, sure, yeah. it really matters in every facet of filmmaking. Visual effects were not anywhere near what they are today you know if you wanted to have really great effects you were spending millions and millions of dollars whereas today you know you can get a lot done for a lot less money but back mm -hmm. in 2002 or one or whenever we were filming this it was uh really difficult but i think the number one problem in the very beginning was that interestingly enough i had done a deal with miramax and then two months after I did the deal with Miramax, Disney bought them. And then Disney at the time did not really want to, the people that were in charge didn't want to make the movie. And Bob Weinstein, who I was working with at Miramax, wouldn't give up. And he went to the head of ABC. And the head of ABC loved A Wrinkle in Time and said, yes, let's try it. They would not give us anywhere near the budget we needed unless we could make it for four hours. 
Well, then that meant you had to change the story a lot because it's really, you know, at the most like a two hour movie, but now we had four hours that we had to fill. So a lot of changes had to be made. And it's like anything, you know, you start making changes and then all of a sudden you have to make more changes and you have to make more changes. Yeah. The dominoes fall. Yeah. The dominoes fall, you know, so there was just so many things that really made it very difficult. You know, I think the timing was right for it to get made because I had been at it for like 20 years and I was just like exhausted. And I thought, well, I would just take this opportunity. The other though was after it was aired and everything, I just, I was so sad that it wasn't my dream. It wasn't what Madeline and I had talked about all these years. And so I really became, I was just resolved to try to get it remade as it should be. And that was what I then tried to do for the next 10 years. What an amazing story. And then, okay, so now you ended up with this, uh, this most recent version that uh, mm-hmm. had a, 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 a big name director, Ava DuVernay, on mm-hmm. board to direct it. Uh, and Jennifer Lee uh, as one of the writers who had done um, Frozen. Frozen. Yeah. And along with Jeff Stockwell and uh, and and uh, kind of this amazing cast: Oprah Winfrey, Reese Witherspoon, Mindy Kaling, uh, Gugu Mbatha-Ra, Michael Pena, the amazing Storm Reid, uh, Zach Galifianakis, and Chris Pine—all a part of this thing. Um, how how about this one? Did it all uh, work out? I know it was quite a quite a journey to get to this, and and I've got to say, from from my perspective, from my daughter uh, watching with with the family. Um, it was really an amazing experience for us. And it's just something that my daughter really connected with. So I loved, I loved seeing that. Yeah. You know, I, I am so happy it was made. I'm very happy that Ava wanted to make it. I was extremely happy that Jennifer Lee wanted to write this screenplay. And I think overall, I was just thrilled that Disney, you know, um, Sean Bailey, the president of Disney, and our beloved executive, Tindal Naginda, um, and his associate, Jessica Virtue, that they were all as committed to making a beautiful version of A Wrinkle in Time as I was. You know, it was a, it was a thrill that I was able to see this through. It was a very curious thing that I had a certain vision of the movie in my head all these years. Obviously, that's what propelled me forward. But then when you get to a place where you're working with the likes of Jennifer Lee and Ava DuVernay and, you know, Jim Whitaker, the other producer, and all the incredible talent at Disney, collaboration means that other people have to be heard and their voices can be louder than yours, you know? And um, so it was um, a wonderful experience for me to to really live through what it's like to work with, with all this talent this big studio, and to learn how to really collaborate. One of the things that was a little different is that I had read the story as a little girl and brought that young girl's vision of it. That's what I carried in my heart all these years. Sure. Ava had never read it as a kid. So mm. what she brought to it was her, her incredible talent, her experience, and that of someone that had not read it as a child, right? Well, now, Jennifer had read, yeah, an adult perspective, and Jennifer had read it as a child too. So now there was this blend. And what was so interesting is that Ava really did, 
I think, a beautiful job of what I think the intention of the studio was to bring a wrinkle in time in the 21st century. You know, we've changed a great, we've changed a lot, you know, in the last 50, 60 years. And it was important that the language be something that meant, meant something to the today's audience. And, and I think Jennifer and Ava really threaded a very difficult needle you know, to kind of bring it into the 21st century. And I will say the, the most wonderful thing that Ava did in our very first meeting was to say she was interested, but she wanted a diverse cast. And I was very happy about that because a long, long time ago, Madeline told me her very favorite line in the book was like an equal or not the same thing at all. And that she had always promised me, I mean, ma- you know, made me promise that that line would be in the movie. And when Ava wanted this diverse cast, I thought that embodied that sentiment that meant so much to Madeline Langle. So it was kind of like um, a synchronicity, you know? And then for the movie to come out at this time of, you know, young women's empowerment, kind of like, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't want to mix it up with the Me Too thing, but, you know, this age of women coming into their own and um, and a, kind of a renaissance for people of color in the arts and everywhere else. It's, it's like it, it came out the way it should at the exact time it should. Yeah, and I think, like I said earlier, like my daughter really connected with it. And I love her seeing films with so many female characters, with, with yeah. a diverse cast of female characters that she can really connect with. And it's not even something that she thinks about when she's watching. Yeah. It's just an exciting group of of characters for her to go on this journey with. And I know uh, it's really, that's so great. I'm so glad to hear that. I think what's kind of sad is that young girls and boys um, love a wrinkle in time, but unfortunately the critics are usually older uh, men and sometimes men and women. And I don't know if you, if you remember, um, Oh gosh, what was that great? movie that robert it's the the silver bell you know, oh, the polar express no. the polar, polar express, polar express. express. You remember yeah. you get to a certain time where you can't hear the bell anymore yes You're right <laughs> and and i think your daughter and definitely me when i read it we could still hear that bell yeah, yeah. and i think a wrinkle in time appeals to the people that can still hear that bell well, they, those the people who can't need to see the movie with people who can, because I find yeah. it absolutely contagious. And I, I deeply enjoyed watching this movie with my kids because, oh, you know, I, so they get the same delight on their face that, you know, that, that I do. And it reminds me of my experience reading this book, the whole series as a kid. Oh, uh, I'm it, so it is, glad. It's just delightful. I, I, I do have one uh, specific question that I have been told I have to ask you, uh, or I might be drummed out of the family uh, on behalf of both of my <laughs> kids uh how could you possibly have let ant beast get cut Catherine? the floor is yours <laughs> listen i join your the members of your family <laughs> I, I i have loved ant beast my entire life you know ant beast is just this incredible character and what happens with meg the the beauty of the story that happens between Meg and Anne Beast is just part of what makes a wrinkle in time so special. 
You yeah. know, it, the, the language, the dialogue, everything that goes on between them is just really, really important. So I share that. Making movies is a really uh, a tough job. And sometimes really tough decisions have to be made for the sake of the movie. Madeline said in a, in a conversation I had with her, when we were working on the script together, because we did work on a script together, and she said, you know, Ant Beast wasn't written to be filmed. It was written yeah. to be read. Mm. So all of the stuff that we love about what goes on between Aunt Beast and Meg, it's the beauty is in reading it. So when we tried to film some of it, it just didn't come across as beautiful as it did in the book. What we did not give up, you know, we, what we did not lose, and I really think that everybody involved had a hand in this, was that the whole section of Ixchel is just very important to the story when Meg realizes that she's the one to go back and not her father. Right. And she's first very angry with him that he's not saving her brother and then realizes, you know, she apologizes to him and that she wanted her father to make everything easy for her and simple and that he can't and that she's the one that has to accept what needs to be done. And so we did not lose that. Yes. Right, which right. I think was really, really important. So please tell your daughters and your wife that I share <laughs> your sadness, but, but I think it's a better movie that we cut it. I, I have to tell you, I personally, as a father of a 16 year old and a 12 year old, uh, was, uh, it just reminded me how deeply crushing that sequence is when the father doesn't go back for, <laughs> I was just like, oh, I need to leave the room. <laughs> yeah, I, am well, a, I am, I am now <laughs> associated with this horrible emotion and I cannot stomach it anymore. No, but then there's this lovely, lovely moment between Meg and her dad when they finally get home. Yeah, and, and Chris you know? Pine Storm oh Reed just crushed that. So I mean, it's just... It. Yeah, I mean, it's just I, really amazing. beautiful. So, you know... I mean, it kind and I got of, it Zach Galifianakis like to stand still. I mean, it was just... There's so <laughs> many huge wins in this movie. Oh, it makes I me... Tell you, <laughs> I, you know, Zach Galifianakis is one of the nicest guys. Oh, he's just like a love. He's a really nice person. Oh, that's great to hear because, you know, other than that, it's between two ferns and you know, <laughs> it's a different character. Can we can we talk just a little bit about uh, about what's going on what or what went on with this movie in the box office? Because I am deeply saddened by it as a, as a money losing thing. And um, I, I don't know how to make sense of it in my heart. I do think that it is important to say that when this movie opened, that it opened, I think, at number two at the box office behind yes. Black Panther. Yeah, so it was right. the it was the the first week where uh, the number one and number two films were both directed by people of color, which I, I was yeah. so excited when I saw that news. Yeah. Oh, right. It, it was, it was. And look, I think everyone shares your disappointment, obviously the people that worked really hard to bring it to the screen. And who, nobody knows, you know. Yeah. It, it's, it's just one of those things. I mean, look at Solo. Yeah, mm -hmm. right, right. <laughs> who can explain you know, but that you, one? You you made a point earlier, which I think is, you know, would be remiss if we didn't at least echo it, which is that, uh, you know, when you talk about the older critics who who were not as kind maybe to the movie because they, they couldn't hear the bell. Well, there is a little bit of this joyless sort of uh, ownership culture 
uh, where, you know, there is a there is a, a population of people who believe they have ownership of certain ideas and properties as fans. Mm-hmm. And when they don't agree, you look at look at Solo when they don't agree, um, you know, and, and what has happened horribly with, uh, you know, with our uh, Rose in, in The Last Jedi. I mean, this is a, this is a, a market of toxicity. And I wonder if there isn't a little bit of echo uh, that that impacted A Wrinkle in Time. I would agree. <laughs> I think yeah. that, um, you know, people that love A Wrinkle in Time fiercely love it. And we're, you know, really expecting, you know, things that maybe they didn't see. And so, you know, they were vocal about that. But on the other hand, I would say that you think about this. Movies have been around for over 100 years. I don't know how many movies that means that have been made but i would guess hundreds of thousands you know pick the number but not one movie before a wrinkle in time had a 13 year old biracial girl as the lead not one Hmm. and i hope that in as we move forward that wrinkle will have a life after you know it won't won't be talked about as you know um, a disappointment at the box office. I hope we get yeah. beyond that. Yeah. And we talk about, you know, the beauty and the themes that are in A Wrinkle in Time. One month after the movie came out, A Wrinkle in Time, the book was number one on the USA Today's bestseller list. Oh, that's great. That is heartwarming. So, you know, I think, I think after all is said and done, you know, people will will speak kindly of this movie and it will have a life that we can't even imagine right now. Um, I think, you know, people didn't like um, The Wizard of Oz. The critics hated The Sound of Music. You know, there, there, so I think movies sometimes, even though critics today said they didn't like A Wrinkle of Time, just wait, you know, yeah. give it some time. And I think maybe we'll find another life. Well, especially as as our kids grow up, it'll be yeah. something that um, you know that they've latched onto, and it's well, more I, yeah. I was going to say, I, I can guarantee yeah, my my kids are taking it with them, like as they grow up. I guarantee <laughs> yeah. that right. it, you know. It, but but it also reminds me, like the the books that I felt even personally even closer to were you know Wind in the Door and Swiftly Tilting Planet. Like the whole for me, it was then the trilogy yeah. uh, was um, was very important, and and I think that's the the thing that uh, you know I I had wished for. Going going into this movie was that there would have been stronger momentum that would have cemented uh, a, cemented them, yeah. a yeah, series. Well, you and me both. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know, you know, maybe in time yeah. um, that'll turn around and the sequels, you know, will have a life somewhere that we can't see or predict. You know, movie business is funny. Yeah. Who knows why Truly. things get made and others don't. But, you know, I do think that, um, it's a crazy thing how critics and certain people on social media and kind of media in general are pretty tough and harsh and uh, almost cynical. And yet the audience, the people at home, they want stories that are like A Wrinkle in Time. And it's just figuring out you know, how to reach that audience that wants to be entertained and uplifted and feel good and you know have some light come into their life and not just be bombarded with dark cynical 
films, which mm-hmm. then critics love, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, it's it's a frustrating mix, you know, and and in the end, you know, the public uh, does find a way to to uh, you know speak their mind, even if it uh, may be decades later. You know, you all. Well, you know, yeah, I always think yeah. it's interesting looking at the Oscars from decades ago and and going, well, this is the movie that won Best Picture, but this is the movie that people still talk about that came out that year. And so it's yeah, it's right? interesting the way that things that lives of things end up uh, lasting. Know. Exactly, exactly. And you know, you know, to get onto our just a segue for a moment, but. I was reading a little bit about um, the sound of music and I, I mean, the, you know, behind the scenes and it was just, you know, kind of surprising to find how many of the people that were behind the, the, the you know, the creative team uh, were so afraid that it would be perceived as, you know, saccharine and sentimental. And if anyone was associated with it, they were sorry that they re- must be really hard up for money and, you know, all that oh, kind of stuff where, hateful. you know, it turned out to be one of the most, you know, number one movies for 1965 and held that until, you know, decades later. I think Jaws was the first movie that started, or was it Jaws or Godfather? One of them. It was the first movie that started, you know, wrinkling time going down. I mean, the sound of music going down on that list, but it held that number one position for decades. Well, you you did a, a nice way of of segueing uh, into the sound of music. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, re- <laughs> the reason that we're here, I mean, we were just having such a great conversation I about know. <laughs> wrinkle of time and everything. It really, it's just fascinating stuff to talk about. But yes, the reason that uh, that we did bring you here is because uh, we were talking about one of your favorite movies, The Sound of Music. So yeah, um, I'm, that I am willing to admit there are many people in the movie <laughs> business who will not admit that they love a, a, the sound of music. <laughs> you know, I, I have a theory about that. And I think it, I think it holds a little bit with films like that and the wizard of Oz that, yeah. that people grew up with seeing all the time. I mean, th- those two films were on TV every year and I watched them every year and it became right. such like a, a recurring part of our life that it's almost like when you're talking about your favorite movies, Oh, it can't be one of those because you know, yeah. I've seen those too many times. And so has everybody else. It has to be something uh, a little more unique or whatever it is. Um, I, I think that that it it becomes so commonplace that people in their minds they just diminish the quality of it a little bit because it's just so common. But yeah. it, I, for me, it doesn't take away kind of the grandeur and the quality of the film. Well, you know, I think what it is is that you can say depending on where you are in your life, there are different films that were brilliant and wonderful. I mean, you know, there's a reason why Citizen Kane is rated the number one film, you know, all the time or Casablanca. But um, the sound of music, I think if you were having a bad day, (laughs) it's good (laughs) to put the sound of music on because you cannot watch that movie and not feel good after you finish watching the film you know it's just makes you feel good i think and this is i i maybe i'm i've coined this maybe i should i should uh trademark it i call this film a lenticular postcard film because (laughs) how many people do you know who when you talk about the sound of music say "Oh, oh yeah i remember that movie and then you remind them there are nazis in it and they're like wait what like <laughs> the whole story is about this the it, it's essentially Mary Poppins with no magic umbrellas yeah. and it stars Mary Poppins 
Jones, and her name is Maria, and yeah. that is it is it is remembered, I think, by many as the 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 singing family movie, and not the true story uh, of the, the Nazis. You know, of of the Nazis annexing Austria. I know. You know, it's it's you're absolutely right. What's uh, very interesting, though, um, William Wyler, who was the first director in in the early early days of bringing the talent together for the sound of music and um and he was working with ernest layman on the screenplay and and i think a lot of the conversation that he had really impacted the development of the screenplay and he went on location to um salzburg but he really wanted to have a a big blow up with tanks coming in and the Nazis <laughs> taking them out. And it was like, because, you know, here was a guy that hated Nazis, you know, and, right, right. and he really wanted to show those damn Nazis, you know? And, uh, and I don't so think funny. that, uh, uh, um, Zanuck and, uh, all the uh, other people behind it really saw that right for this musical. <laughs> and so I think when William <laughs> Wyler decided not to do it, I, I think they were secretly relieved and uh, and because I think you're right. I mean, there are Nazis in it and they really did a great job of helping you forget that. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. It, until you get to the very end and you realize this is an incredibly intense sequence. Like yeah. this is the, the sequence in the in the cemetery is just, we, I mean, how many times have I seen this movie? And my whole family was watching it this morning and we're literally on the edge of our seats, on the edge of the couch. I know. Uh, watching this and movie. you just we wonder know how Rolf it ends. Gonna, yeah, <laughs> right? exactly. And you, you still wonder, is Rolf, is he going to tell? Is he going to Yes. <laughs> Rolf, come on, man. It gets, yeah, it's so tense. And that, I, as a kid, I remember just watching this and I was just like, uh, you know, you know, my, clenching my parents. I was so tense from the scene. It's It was so terrifying. Watching as an adult, you realize how short that whole sequence is, but it's like, it's such a tense ending for the film. It really... Well, and you know, when I was a kid, I remember being really concerned that those kids were going to talk you know they would cough sneeze. and that would bring oh, the nazis Gerda was going to sneeze or yeah. they or they weren't going to be behind that stone and the flashlight that was you know behind the gate right, you know, yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny and it is so interesting the story of of how the whole thing came to be i you know i i've always known the story i've known the songs and everything but re- doing some research on it and realizing you know um, uh, Maria von Trapp that, and the Trapp family singers, her husband had died. And so she kind of wrote this memoir to kind of promote the group and to try to, you know, kind of keep the, the funds coming in and everything. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, uh, and she tried to sell it to Hollywood, but Hollywood wasn't interested at the time. This was right. the late forties. And it was a German producer who ended up buying the rights and made yeah. two films that I didn't even know existed. Uh, the first one was the trap family. And the second one was the trap family in America. Right. And, and it's like, I had no idea that those had, had been in existence. And, and, um, and I was always curious about the credit at the opening where it says with the partial use of ideas by Georg Herdelek, who I guess yeah. was one of the screenwriters for one of those versions. Well, and you know, what's interesting in 19, I think 61 or 62, I saw the Von Trapp family singers movie. Oh, did you really? Yeah, I saw it. It was playing at the local theater. And I remember loving it, right? But I didn't 
it was a, it was a while later that I made the connection that the Von Trapp family singers that when the sound of music wasn't a remake, you know, I was like, I thought, yeah. oh, is this a remake of the movie that I saw? But I'll tell you another little funny story when you were talking a sad story when Maria Von Trapp sold those rights to was it Rudolph or Ronald um, uh, Max Reinhardt? Um, she had asked for ten thousand dollars, and she had asked for. Um, a piece of the royalties. And he said, well, and he's German. And he said, well, the German law is that we cannot give piece of royalty to foreigner. And at that time she had been made an American citizen and she did it. And she didn't ask her lawyer if it was true. She just thought he was telling the truth. So she signed the deal, got her money and found out that that did not exist. So if you think about this, that poor woman did not get anything because someone lied to her. I mean, it's and, basically what happened. And those two movies became the most successful films in West Germany during the post-war yeah, years. So she yeah. lost out on all that part of them. I know. Oh, it's kind of sad. But anyway, you know, listen, the, the entertainment business as well as every other business is filled with those kind of stories. But I always think that's so sad. Well, I didn't hear anything as far as her deal with the uh, with the U.S. because Paramount um, eventually um, bought the rights to to make this. Um, I think before it um, reverted, or and then some, they bought the rights to it, but it, then they decided to um, do the stage musical, and then 20th Century Fox ended up getting the rights to that to yeah. uh, to make the film. So I don't know if she ended up getting any part of uh, of that or not. Well, but, she uh, did, I'll I hope tell you so. something. Yeah, she got a, she got like. Uh, 708% is a small fraction of 1%. But you know, Mm -hmm. even that would be, that would be good. And I don't know if it was, I think it was, was either of the play or the, or the movie. I can't remember. One of them, she got a small percentage because I think they were just trying to be kind. They didn't have to. And I think they just thought it was the right thing to do. Well, I think with both of them being success, I'd like to think that it still ended up working out for her. Yes, I think head, (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I mean, you know, but I mean, it's it's just such a beautiful movie. It's so funny, though. I did see it not too long ago, and I thought, oh, it's a little dated (laughs) in the way that we make movies today. But there is just so much joy in it, you know? Well, it's got that kind of that magic from the 60s, the big epics that they were making back in the 60s. This was uh, uh, Robert Wise's second big epic musical that he did this decade right after West Side Story. Yeah. And so he was kind of right in the thick of it. Everybody was looking for this sort of story. Rodgers and Hammerstein had been kind of making all of these big movies and doing such a great job with them. Um, And, you know, I I think that... uh, this is some of their best music. I mean, the songs in this, I mean, you can just go down oh. the list of songs and, you know, every time I'm thinking about it, I'm like, Oh, well, do re me is obviously my favorite. Oh, no way. I forgot yeah. about, I forgot yeah. about the, uh, you know, my favorite things. Oh, I forgot about the goat herd songs. I love all of the songs. And the thing that I love, probably one of the top five things that I love about the movie is the opening. I mean, when that yeah. just comes to the clouds and you hear birds and it comes through the mountains and it keeps going it looks so beautiful and the music starts to swell and it just keeps building and it keeps building and then you see this woman on the top of that hilltop (laughs) and twirls i mean it is just so thrilling 
You know, you don't. It's know a exactly bold where opening. Going to be. It is. It's very bold. And um, I read someplace that Robert Wise was um, because the whole opening idea came from Ernest Lehman, and Robert Wise was concerned that it was too similar to kind of like the big opening of West Side Story. So he kind of didn't want to go there. And then Layman said, okay, we'll come up with something else. And they couldn't. Wins by like, default. Oh well. <laughs> oh well. Right. <laughs> well, it, what's, you know, it ends up being kind of a really nice bookend for the movie uh, to to have this this opening sequence that is this beautiful sort of cascading uh, sequence through the the Alps, and then the end of the movie is the whole family now back in the Alps, looking right, uh, really charming and and happy, and the weather is lovely, and and uh, you know, it's it's a nice bookend to what is uh, kind of a roller coaster. Or emotional roller coaster of a movie. Of course, the first thing my wife says as she's reading this is, "Yeah, I don't think the refugees looked that good crossing the Alps <laughs> on foot." <laughs> I don't know, but <laughs> well, I said, "Shh, sh- it- shut up! Nobody asked you." <laughs> yeah. Well, very true. And you know, the other thing too is, I don't know why, but somewhere I don't know if it's a movie, if it's in com- you know articles that have been written, but don't you have the feeling that they went over that mountain to Switzerland? I always, I guess I assumed so. Yeah. Okay, so Salzburg isn't next to Switzerland. Right, how would they, <laughs> how would that? Now that you say that, I'm like, <laughs> I better pull up a map, because I'm right. not sure. <laughs> They did it. They went over that, They're in real life, around to Italy. <laughs> but oh. for some reason, I do not know why, but people have said, oh, you know, they went over to Switzerland. But it's like, no, they went to Italy. Anyway, it's just a little tidbit. <laughs> but, so, there, wow. but there are so many wonderful stories about you know the making of the movie i think everybody involved really loved it i mean you know i think that they saw even in the early dailies that they had something very very special and uh i mean it's just kind of ironic that christopher Plummer, you know thinks it's so sentimental and he that he had to be in it and all that kind of stuff and it's kind of the role that he's most famous for it's and it's so funny hearing the stories uh, of him and and his opinions of it. You know how he would uh, make up names for it, like oh, the sound of mucus. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he was so disdainful of it. Um, but I, I think it's just something that he's he's kind of grown to, uh, appreciate. to uh, appreciate at least deal with in a way. Yeah. You know, because I, I know like. I, I can't remember if it was Oprah or uh, Ellen or somebody, uh, some t- daily talk show did uh, like a big anniversary, like a 50th anniversary thing. And, and, you know, he finally agreed to appear after all this time of not <laughs> wanting to talk about it. And I, I, you know, I think he's kind of at a place where he's like, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll grudgingly accept that I was a part of it and I'll, I'll enjoy it a little bit. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, good for him. You know, I mean, he's absolutely shown his chops in so many other movies, so he can be gracious about the sound of music, you know, but um, one time, uh, I was asked, not an interview, just by a friend, I think, you know, well, what, what was the music, you know, that you were listening to the course of trying to get a wrinkle in time made? And I, I never wanted to admit, but I think I played Climb Every Mountain, you know, three times a day. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what inspiration. You know, I, was always, That's great. I was always dealing with rejection and disappointment. And I would play that song, I Have Confidence, on the way to work. That's what oh, I, would I play, love. That. You know? I, I, I love had, that. I had a, the the tape, and because it just gave me so much um, 
inspiration and confidence to meet my day. And I know that it probably sounds like people want to gag when I say that, but it was true. You know, I mean, I think I'm sad that there's so much cynicism for young people, uh, that they live in a world with so much cynicism because I was just taught to look at the glass half full and not half empty. And I think that that kind of attitude and approach to life really has guided me through everything. And I think movies like A Wrinkle in Time fed that attitude and approach. Sure. I mean, not A Wrinkle in Time, uh, The Sound of Music. I'm sorry. I I talk about A Wrinkle in Time so much. (laughs) 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 But I meant The Sound of Music. I think Sound of Music, you know, really... You know, it just, uh, I think it's just a really wonderful movie and I'm not alone, you know, that think that. You know, it's funny, you you mentioned, uh, you know, I have confidence in me as as one of the songs and I, I didn't know this. Like, I, I, I guess I, thinking about this and wanting to talk about the show, I realized I had no idea, like in my head, it's like I, I never really kind of put two and together. I've never actually seen the stage show version of this. I've only mm-hmm. ever watched the musical. It's become right. such a part of my life that I, I kind of forgot that there was a musical that existed before this. And then you start right. looking at like all the work that Ernest Lehman did as he was adapting it and how he had to kind of switch songs from this place to that place. And and I was listening to them talk about it on the commentary and it's like, wow, the goat herd song was what Maria sings to the kids when they're scared from the thunderstorm. Yeah. Uh, my favorite things, Maria sings with the nuns. I'm like, this is crazy. Like, I can't even right? picture that version in my head. It's so weird. I know. I know. And Ernest Lehman was just, you know, and what I've read, Ernest Lehman was really the champion of this. I mean, while the studio was trying to figure it out, producer was trying, I mean, Ernest Lehman was the heart and soul of this. You know, he was the one that was trying to get Bob Wise. He thought Julie yeah. Andrews was the only one that should play. It. you know he he really lived and breathed the sound of music before everyone else kind of got on board and um and you know and one of the things that i read is that he was trying to be very true to the original material so i think he was looking at the play and he was looking at the books that maria had written i think he was looking at the um von trapp family singer movies and like taking bits and pieces from everything to see what you know would make sense one little story i read that i thought was really funny is that he actually had lunch or dinner with maria von trapp and one of the things that she said to him was that being at the abbey was so you know so strict and that she even got to the place where you know, she would kiss the floor before she did anything wrong. And if you, <laughs> if you, she used that in the movie. He did. He did. That, <laughs> that moment that Maria Von Trapp actually did is in the movie. And I just love that. I think that's so great. Did you guys, did you see the cameo of Maria Von Trapp in the movie? During yeah. the I Have Confidence song? I, I, I feel like I know I she's there, but I, I didn't know about it until afterward. I haven't gone back to look for her yet. Oh, she's way it. in the distance. Man, you need to know to look. <laughs> okay. I, I feel like I watched it really close and, and I just missed it. Uh, something well, about so how she crosses into the she's arch. She's at the water fountain and oh. way in the back. She's at the water fountain, you know, I think her hand is she's spraying some water or whatever. And way in the back, there is a woman, kind of you only see her silhouette. And she's walking across the plaza 
And I think with someone, and that's Maria Von Trapp. And like the only her reason, granddaughter, I think. Yeah. yeah. And the only reason why I know is because on some uh, special, they had a kind of, what do you call it? Like a laser beam. <laughs> <laughs> something that they had that was showing you. Aha, see that? That's Oh, Maria they had Montreux. to point her out. Yeah, a pointer. <laughs> How funny. I love it. But it was really, it was great. That's too funny. But, um, but you know, apparently Maria Von Trapp is a pretty powerful person. Well, and, you know, I think Julie Andrews was such a great choice to play her because I think uh, Julie Andrews, especially coming off of Mary Poppins, um, yeah. really had just so much strength. And I love the story of of uh, when uh, Wise and Layman found her, you know they were watching some early test footage of Mary Poppins, which is the yeah. first thing. And Wise leaned over to Layman before they even finished. He says, "Let's go sign this girl before someone else sees this and grabs her." <laughs> yeah, right. You know they were so taken by her her screen presence, and absolutely, yeah. I think she's just a delight to watch on screen here. Oh, I mean, she's just like fantastic, and uh, it was funny years ago when she got. You remember when she got the Kennedy Center honors? Yeah. Julie Andrews. So I don't know, you know, like, like a crazy happenstance. I was in the elevator at the Kennedy center and she was in the same elevator and I was so excited to be in the presence of Maria. <laughs> <laughs> I could, I couldn't, usually I always say hello. You know, something I could not, I could not say anything. Oh. It was like, Oh, oh my no. God, there she is. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm sure so we all have somebody excited. like that. That were yeah, like, right? I, I just wouldn't be able to say anything. Yeah, my the two people in my life that have actually done that to me are Julie Andrews, and once I was in an elevator with Catherine Hepburn, and the exact same thing happened. I just, I was, I was just in awe. I, I totally in awe, and couldn't do any say anything. Well, it, you know what's so great about this casting too is that Christopher Plummer, just the way he aged, really pulls yeah. it off. I mean, the the real story. Uh, apparently, there's a 25 year gap uh, between Maria and and Captain Von Trapp. And in this movie, I mean, Christopher Plummer and Julie Andrews are only six years uh, difference in in age, and yet I, I think they really it really works. She looks so fresh faced and young, and he looks he looks just kind of aged and grizzled enough. Oh, um, I know. That, and that uh, dance really when they works. do that. Oh, yeah. it's so romantic. Yeah, so romantic. It really is. So romantic. And, there, oh, you know, I, I'm telling you, I, I, I said, as my, my one comment on this, a snarky comment on this as I was watching it is, man, The Sound of Music is the was the best season of The Bachelor, right? When he... <laughs> <laughs> when he tells the Baroness to go pound sand and goes yeah, out right. to the dark garden in the dark and says, you know, I, I, I have when they have their little conversation so close, so soft focus about, you yeah. know, it, I have to say I love you, you know, to yeah. couldn't say I love you to somebody and not mean it. I uh, even I uh, was uh, I, my heart skipped a beat. I was like, that's just so romantic. <laughs> I can't believe I it. I'm gonna I mean, kill it. Was it. Romantic. <laughs> and then the kids were so cute. Yeah, I mean, they were you know, who didn't want, I, I wanted to be one of those kids, you know, but Absolutely. I was too old. I couldn't audition. I was too old. Except but... I swear that those outfits that she makes out of the, out of the drapes, every time I watch I'm like, oh my God, I cannot believe anybody would wear those play clothes. Know, right? that, that they all wear them. <laughs> oh my God, the floral lederhosen. I know, lederhosen right? made out of drapes. So oh, good. you know, one thing I read that I thought was really interesting, forever, I always thought Edelweiss was a true Australian folk song. I mean, I always did. And -hmm. then, of course, you know, you find out, no, Roger Hammerstein wrote that. But that was the very last song that Oscar Hammerstein ever wrote. And then after he wrote that, um, not too long after he wrote it, he died. 
Oh, yeah. So, I mean, it's a very special song because I love that song. It's so simple. It says everything that, you know, we all feel about, you know, country we love or whatever people we love. Country, family, all that. Yeah, all of it. And um, that that was his last song. That was cool. Well, and, and that's another one that Lehman uh, expanded on in the film because in the in the play it only was ever performed at the end when they're performing at the uh, at the playhouse. Oh, really? Yeah, and they so did, he's like, "This song is so good, we have to bring it in earlier." And so that's why yeah. we have uh, the captain singing it earlier. And it's like, uh, thank goodness that they do because it really uh, it's oh, a perfect song yeah. for him to sing with his family. Yeah, because now when you when you hear it the first time, then it's even more poignant when he sings it the second time, and he knows that that's you know he's leaving, yeah. and it really catches you. I mean, it really means. And then he couldn't get through it, and she has to finish it for him. I mean, I'm telling you, they they really knew how to get you with the tears. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Can you tell I love this movie? Well, and you know what's great about the 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 what you just said with the tears and stuff is um it really struck me watching this uh this time how how kind of gracious the baroness is and how she's kind of realizing um you know this is not the right guy for me and I couldn't help but feel like this was something that Nora Ephron had must have just watched before she wrote right. the scene in Sleepless in Seattle when Bill Pullman's character says, "You know what? I, you know, I, I am better. I'm going to go find somebody else." You know, and just the way that the breakups happened in those two films, I'm like, God, it, it was really strong. Yeah, you know, but when I when I saw that recently, I thought. That had to have been written by a man, because I know of no woman that would have done that so well. <laughs> <laughs> it is it is such a textbook sort of narcissistic uh, response, right? There, there are a couple of these, just the expert demonstration of narcissism and of ADHD. I mean, Maria, if she doesn't have just classic young adult ADHD, I don't know I what know, it is right? at the beginning. <laughs> it's just so good. Like, well, I, definitely I know some... you think, yeah, definitely. I mean, this is yeah. a kid, that, a woman that cannot stay still. <laughs> right. And, and yeah. even the nuns want to kick her out. Like, even yeah. the nuns. So. I know, you know. So, but it was really great. And I, I, one thing though, have you ever been to one of those um, sing alongs? It's funny that you say that. I was actually looking, um, kind of just finding out some kind of facts and tidbits about it. And I was reading about these sing along sound of music shows. I mean, they started, I guess back in 99 and it's they've happened on and off but there's like some theaters there's one in in london that has been having them consistently running since 2016 they're like amazingly popular i know i've i've never brought myself to do that because i you know i'm not like obsessed (laughs) 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 but there was this woman in vienna i guess or somewhere yeah and she had she's like the guinness world's was how do you say that Guinness Book of World Records? Yeah, Guinness Book of World Records, 940 times. Oh, my my goodness. goodness. That she had seen um, The Sound of Music. Wait, so what do you do with these things? You go and you just sing along? Is it like a Rocky Horror kind of a thing? Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. People, people like dress up out. like nuns and the kids and everything. Yeah, it's totally the same thing. And they thing. all get to sing Do Re Mi. They all get to <laughs> sing all of this, you know? So, um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Do they still go on? They still, yeah, they still they're happy? still, it's still as popular. Like I said, there's this theater in London that's been doing it consistently, like since 2016. Like I am assuming it's a once a week, like every weekend or something. Yeah. And well, I will say, I'm just really glad that no one's ever yet wanted to remake it. 
Well, there was the uh, the the Sound of Music live version that was on TV yeah, uh, 2013. Saying, yes, yes, yeah. yes. I know that was, but it was okay. Well, that's so a different was that, thing. Was that that's a different movie thing. Or, did they do the movie or the play? An adaptation based on the musical itself, and not the 1965 film version. Yeah. So oh, so go. it was. Yeah. Well, you know that's okay because it's television. You know, I mean. Well, and it's the live thing. You know, they started this whole trend of these live annual things, which I I love that they started doing that. I I haven't been a fan of watching them because it's, I, I, you know, it's a, it's something I kind of struggle through with some of them, but, uh, but I still love that they're creating that it's, it's kind of bringing people around to watch that, but still, if if it's going to be the sound of music, this is the version I want to watch. Yeah, no, I think that um, I agree with you. Okay, so how did it do in awards season, Andy? You know, it was pretty popular at the awards um, for for its time. It had 17 wins, 13 other nominations. Um, over at the Oscars, it ended up winning Best Picture, Best Director, Best Sound, Best Film Editing, and Best Music Scoring of a Music Adaptation or Treatment. I love when they had to have such complicated music categories at the Oscars. Um, the other nominations, Julie Andrews was nominated for Best Actress, but she lost to Julie Christie for Darling, which I've never seen. Um, yeah, me neither. Yeah, yeah. Again, going back to films that you talk about and films you don't, right? Why um, didn't she win? My think? hunch is that it was because she had just won for Mary Poppins the year before. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So um, Peggy Wood was nominated as uh, she was the uh, the head nun. Uh, she Did was she win? For- she, no, she was nominated for supporting. Uh, she lost to Shelley Winters in A Patch of Blue, another one. I oh, that's seen. okay. Shelley Winters should have won. <laughs> she okay. Was <laughs> in a patch of blue. Uh, best color cinematography, best art direction, set decoration, and best costume design all lost to Doctor Zhivago. Which um, oh well, it was the curtain. I can see that. Yeah, I can too. I can see. <laughs> the ice castle, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. What about what about in the budget? I mean, I, you know, we've been uh, since we've been talking about performance. Obviously, this thing uh, did pretty well. Yeah, Robert Wise had eight point two million dollars to make his epic musical, which is about sixty two point six million in today's dollars. The Whoa. movie opened. Yeah, I know. Uh, it seems so low for a film like this. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, the movie opened March second, nineteen sixty five, initially as a roadshow theatrical release, uh, and then expanded across the country. Critics were mixed on it, but it did become an instant hit, and in just four weeks, had become the number one box office, number one movie at the box office, and became not only the highest-grossing film of the year, but one of the most profitable films out there. In fact, by November of 1966, it had become the highest-grossing film ever, beating out *Gone with the Wind*, a position which has wow. held for five years. Wow! I'm right. I know. Uh, it ended up breaking box office records in 29 other countries and had its initial initial theatrical release in the U.S. for four and a half years. That blows what? my mind. Wow. Wow. Wait, wait, wait a minute. You could go see that in a movie theater yes. for four and a half years? Can you believe that? But in late <laughs> no. 1969, you could still go see The Sound of Music in theaters. <laughs> Oh my goodness! I, I just, just watched I a Wrinkle even... in Time in my house. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that's like shocking. I didn't right. know that. I wow. That's well, amazing. if you think about it, they had no other way to watch movies. So if, yeah. if you wanted to go see a movie, that was it. So yeah. Uh, and in some cities in the United States, the number of tickets sold uh, exceeded the total population of the city. <laughs> so. Oh my God. 
It is that's crazy. People, that's because people were seeing it three and four times. Exactly, exactly. Um, it did have two subsequent re-releases in 1973 and 1990, which have all been very successful. All told, the movie raked in 163.2 million domestically, and it was in fact the first film to gross over 100 million dollars at the box office. It was down to music. Yeah. It was, wow. yeah. and uh, in uh, it, it grossed 123 million internationally, giving it a total adjusted gross of just under 2.2 billion. <laughs> very oh successful. God. And when you look That's at all time, oh when, when you look That's at all time adjusted domestic gross, this film is just behind Gone with the Wind and Star Wars. So, so those so are the top three. Those are the top three uh, for domestic adjusted gross. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it lands the film at a profit to cost ratio of nearly 35% of what it made back. And it gave it an adjusted profit per finished minute of $12.2 million. $12.2 million a minute. So don't you wonder, don't you wonder if the studio thinks it's in profit and they should be starting to pay people now? Oh, right. You know what? Weirdly, I, I don't actually wonder that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, they've still found ways to make it sound yeah. like it lost. Exactly. No, I'm telling you. That, that disappointment doing... of the sound of music. I know, right? That two point billion. Well, maybe we should start, you know, paying oh. out people. Jeez. But oh, so God. funny. Well, then, this I'm is... so excited to know that it did so well. Oh, right. Oh, what an auspicious pick. I, I think it, at this point, we should probably get to the uh, the most contentious part of the show where we rank it. Absolutely. Oh. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see the the all of the films we've talked about on this show. Uh, or if you swipe over in your show notes, you will see the word flickchart. Go ahead and tap on it. It'll take you right to flickchart uh, to this movie where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up against ours. Uh, very excited to see how this works. All right. First up, we have The Sound of Music or Star Trek Beyond. <laughs> well, is that the, the one? With, no, that's not The Wrath of Khan, right? <laughs> no, Star no. Trek Beyond is the most recent one. Okay, so Sound of Music. Sound of Music for me, too. Yeah. The Sound of Music or Predestination. An interesting <laughs> little time travel or uh, uh, time bending movie. Sound of uh, music. I can go Sound of Music. Yep, Sound of Music for me, too. The Sound of Music? Oh, speaking of, Catherine's or Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. <laughs> oh, well, I did like The Wrath of Khan, but Sound it of Music. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go Sound of Music. Yep, Sound yeah, of Music. Too. The Sound of Music, it's getting tough now, or All the President's Men. Oh, Sound of Music. I, I liked All the President's Men. I really did. I thought it was good. But I think yeah. oh, Sound of Music as a whole is a better movie. I'm going to say Sound of Music, Pete. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's a principled loss. I would have chosen uh, all the president's men. Just it's it's there in my heart. But I am I don't feel bad about losing. There you go. <laughs> okay. Okay, you right. can be the outlier. <laughs> yeah. You're the outlier. The sound of music or die hard. <laughs> oh wow. Two opposing two <laughs> well, annual Christmas movies. So like, let me ask you something. Am I on a deserted island with one TV set and these are my choices? Yes. Right. Yes. Well, you know, I'm gonna I'm always going to want to be uplifted. <laughs> I'll have to choose Sound of Music. Maybe. I think for this one, I'm going to go Die Hard. <laughs> I, I am. I love Die Hard. It's so good. But I, I just can't. I mean, it's going to be really, totally hear you. Really I totally hear you. tough to get me to change from Sound of Music. This is a, though, yeah, yeah, you have to just uh, know where this movie is for Andy and I in our youth. And uh, oh. I think die. I think I'm gonna have to go Die Hard too. Just okay. Just I, of that. I I respect that. I do. I respect it. 
very much uh, are growing up with that one. Of a uh, this is a this is an interesting pairing. So one brings you up and one really brings you down. <laughs> the Sound of Music or Requiem for a Dream. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wow. Well, uh, I'm going to go with the sound of music. I'm hands down the sound of music. I, yeah, sound of music <laughs> for me. Uh, a Requiem is, a, is an amazing and powerful film, but whew, boy, does it beat you up. Yeah. The sound of music or touch of evil, little Orson Welles. Oh, sound of music. I didn't think touch of evil was all that great. I thought it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Orson Welles is a genius. I mean, you know. Or... Uh, I, well, I feel like I'm going to say "Touch of Evil," too. but now I feel I feel embarrassed saying that. <laughs> <laughs> you, can say, you can say "Touch of Evil." I just remember the shadows. Yes. Well, hey, I'm, I am say? Sound of Music, so. All right. Well, there yeah. you go. Principled loss. The Sound of Music or Groundhog Day? Oh, oh dear, no, that's tough. <laughs> really tough. Oh no. <laughs> I have to say the Sound of Music, but I did think Groundhog. I thought Bill Murray was so good. It's such a great movie. Oh, I, I think I'm. And I, I think just I'm saw Groundhog that Day, you guys. Hmm? What, what, I think that? I'm Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day. Yeah. Well, I, I want one of them to be because it deserves one vote. Yeah. Well, Maybe yeah. Even two. Yeah, I, right, I'm going to huh? give it to Groundhog Day too, which okay. I feel really guilty about. I, I know. So cool. no, it hurts. Don't feel guilty. Don't feel guilty. It's all right. <laughs> well, that one is weirdly. I feel my mother judging me. Is that weird? <laughs> <laughs> Like, because I know she would be, she'd be reprimanding me for, for no. anything over sound of music. <laughs> no, but I think, I think it's okay. Cause you know, it's funny. Yeah, it is funny. Well, that puts the sound of music at, at spot 14 on our chart out of 358 wow. movies. So it shot wow. way up to good. the top. So absolutely. <laughs> Great pick. Well, I just, I hope this conversation has encouraged your audience to see a wrinkle in time and to see the sound of music. Absolutely. If you had to give this uh, a star rating out of five stars, I'm assuming you'd give it five stars, but just to I be on the safe side. I think I think that's an honest, good assumption. I mean, I think okay. that you let me listening to this conversation. Uh, wonderful, wonderful. Andy, that well, probably Catherine, means you, you're right about two and a half stars, right? Because, you know, you probably have some quibbles. I think uh, uh, yes, five stars I would give it around. a firm five stars and yeah. a like. So I'm way up there with this one. Right. Oh, you guys are so nice. Usually people just like make fun of me for liking the sound of music. And it what? seems like you liked it too. Oh, no, that, absolutely. This is a great pick. This is oh, a great good. pick. It's oh, it's good. an annual favorite. The, something the whole family just loves to watch. So it's oh, it's really a, a fantastic <laughs> one to pick. And I think I, I told say, you we had just I should done say, it. Also, Dee Wallace was on the show, you know, Dee Wallace. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and she called both Andy and I a couple of wussies. So I don't know if that <laughs> if that plays into it. <laughs> Why we love it so much. You're not supposed to keep telling people that, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I think, you know, look, you give cover. I mean, one of the things, you know, sometimes... You give cover to people who um, are too shy to like admit that they like it. And so if you like it, then it's like, okay, for someone else to say, oh, yeah, I liked it too. Absolutely. <laughs> That's good. Absolutely. That's a yeah. gracious way to put it. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Well, Catherine, are you on social media? Like, do you, are you out there in the social I, circles? If people I, I to find am you, find in, you? In, a, in a limited way, made by hand five and Twitter. Made by and, hand five. Yeah, made by hand. Is five. that the number five? Yeah, made by gotcha. hand five. Twitter. I mean, Ava DuVernay is the queen of Twitter, and during <laughs> the production, I'm telling you, she is yeah. really. Um, She's everywhere. 
And uh, so during production, she was always posting and all, and you know, we all just felt like we were just Luddites that we knew nothing. And <laughs> um, so she kind of taught us all how to like have a handle and post things. And I, I must say, you know, now that I'm kind of more aware of it, it's fun. Although yeah, there are some people that use it that really do diabolical things with it, like, yeah. you know, other people. Yeah, there are some awful people out there. No, terrible. But it's fun. And uh, so isn't that the only... Oh, and Instagram. But I I don't really... That's only for like I do with my family. Oh, okay. Well, we'll just... We'll post the Twitter. We got you on Twitter. That's perfect. People want to follow you there. Well, guys, this was so much fun. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Catherine. We had such a fantastic conversation with you. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Me too. And go and tell your friends to rent or buy A Wrinkle in Time. Absolutely. <laughs> Noted Definitely all the links. Out. We'll put all the links in the show notes uh, to check out uh, Catherine's good work. Uh, and uh, and thank you so much, Catherine. You're a delight. And uh, thanks for putting up with you. all of our shenanigans. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. And for everybody else out there, we hope you enjoyed the show. If you like what you heard, but you can't wait until next week's show, you can support us over on patreon.com slash thenextreel to get involved in more stuff. You can also learn about us at thenextreel.com. You can subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Next Reel. Thanks for tuning in to The Next Reel, everybody. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. I'm gonna use you to be my friend. I love having these wonderful chats on movies we like with all these industry guests talking about some of their favorite movies. So many great conversations on that show about so many great movies. We have so much fun having these conversations, but producing the show week after week does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these incredible conversations. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all the adapted film discussions on The Next Reel's family of podcasts. Purchasing through our links supports the show. It's your one-stop shop for Amazon and Apple links where you can buy your copy of the original source material. Original material for movies we like, movies like Casino Royale. The Silent Partner. Never Let Me Go. Silver Linings Playbook. There Will Be Blood, based on Upton Sinclair's Oil. I believe it's Oil! Oh, yeah. I forgot the exclamation point. (laughs) Plus, by using those links to buy your next read, Apple and Amazon show us a little bit of love, which allows you to support our family of shows with minimal effort. TheNextReel.com slash originals. It's a great way to support the show and find your next page turner. That's right. Head over to TheNextReel.com slash originals to pick out your next read and dig in today. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. 
and their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.